Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. In this episode, we have a fascinating discussion lined up on capital management, the future of working capital management, and much more. With us are the two founders of IORA, Stefan M. Siesla, co-founder at IORA, and Gordon McKenzie, CTO and co-founder at IORA. Stefan brings his expertise from his previous roles at FIG Corporate Finance and as Chief of Staff at Bankable, while Gordon McKenzie has a background as a clinical entrepreneur at NHS England. Together, they bring a very interesting blend of knowledge around capital management and technology. Our conversation with them was truly captivating and we're excited to share it with you. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is working capital management, why is it important for companies, what is the role of a corporate treasurer when it comes to working capital management, what could be the role of AI in working capital management, what is a treasury policy, what does IORA do, and much, much more. Their knowledge and passion for the topic were truly inspiring and we really enjoyed our discussion with those two. We hope you will enjoy it as well. If that is the case, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast app. It only takes two seconds and your support means the world to us and it helps the podcast thrive as well. Last but not least, we started the AI Treasury Insights newsletter, a bi-weekly three to five minute read that covers what is happening in the world of AI in Treasury and how this technology will change the way we do corporate treasury. Follow the link in the description or simply type in your browser corporate-treasury-101.com slash newsletter. With all that being said, please welcome Stefan and Gordon. Stefan Borden, thank you so much for coming on the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Great to have you. Super excited to dig into it. We've touched on uh, working capital management in the past uh, on the podcast. Guillaume explained it to me really, really well, um, but that was a bit of a time ago. <laughs> so could you start off by just like taking us through what working capital management is and why it's important to companies? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you were to kind of try to summarize this in a relatively simple way. It's really a set of processes that are ultimately aimed at maximizing cash flow. And I think if you, if you kind of want to go a little bit deeper, you know, some of the key aspects would probably include managing your inventory and customer billing and collections, kind of realize cash inflows, and then accounts payable to essentially optimize the timing of, of cash outflows. And, and why is it important? Well, it's... Uh, I guess it's generating cash is the bread and butter of every company and that's that's the ultimate goal. So a well-designed working capital management process helps companies to maximize the, the cash that they generate organically and and it all else being equal should lead to, to a lower requirement to access external financing due to more expensive. So it's like making sure that the companies like manage their inflows and outflows and balance it correctly. I remember there was like short term versus long term in that as well. Is that the kind of that time frames work or because cash can be, I mean, you, money's coming in and out on a minute by minute basis in a lot of companies, right? Are you really looking at that level of detail or is it on a day cycle? Like what, what is it? How does that work? 
Yeah, I guess it depends on the company. You know, many companies um, might look at working capital management on a, let's say, a weekly basis and sometimes daily. If you if you have a very fast fast cash cycle, you might look at it intraday as well. I guess you know if you think about a balance sheet, all the assets which which are classified as, as short term assets and all the liabilities that are classified as short term liabilities, usually that means less than twelve months are typically included in working capital. And you know, I mentioned. Um, receivables, inventory, payables, but there are also other aspects to it. Um, and a lot of them are dependent on, on your business model. Now, I remember this 12 month mark thing that Gail mentioned when, when he talked it to me the first time and to everyone else. Um, so what's the role of a treasury department specifically in that process? In yeah, great question. Again, I think it slightly depends, but typically treasury plays like an oversight role and they will work very closely with, with teams that kind of manage each strand of, of working capital. So for example, you know, they will often interface with uh, colleagues in credit control or accounts payable or procurement to make sure that all these processes are done in a, in a timely, in a timely manner. And I think that's important because treasury is essentially the function that has, has the, the broader perspective and the broader view of this. And they also understand how all these processes ultimately tie back to financing of the company. Okay. And we've been through a lot lately, right? Uh, over the last couple of years, so we had a, a pandemic and we have quite a, a changing and evolving macroeconomic environment. I'm thinking about the Russia-Ukraine war, the community prices going over the roof. Um, I mean, overall, the market is more and more uncertain and volatile, right? So how should treasury and actually finance professionals, because I, I don't think only treasury is impacted by this, right? How do professionals should look working capital management now? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a very interesting question and it's it's very topical. And, um, you know, I think if you look at the current macro environment, in totality, this, this leads to essentially cost of capital increasing. Um, and if you think about it that's, that way, then managing your working capital in an efficient way um, is essentially a way to, to reduce your, your financing costs. And um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, and the extent you can maximize cash in hand for your organic operations, you don't need to access as much external financing, um, which in the current environment is, is only going up. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point you make here. So if that allows you to have cash more easily accessible, you don't have to borrow them at amazing interest rates going over the roof, right? So you can fund your activities yourself and not go to the banks charging interest well because of the environment, right? Is Absolutely. It, do you think it's a trend that is uh, meant to continue or is it just once in a lifetime? Yeah, great, great question. I, I'm not an economist, but uh, I take a keen interest in, in this. Um, I think it's probably very difficult to foresee. And, you know, some of those um, factors that impact the current macro environment uh, that you mentioned are probably, well, we hope, temporary in nature. So, you know, with, um, with some of the ge geopolitical pressures easing up, hopefully that should also lead to, for example, you know, uh, energy prices coming down, but at the same time, th this is a, a, a pretty big question that many finance professionals pose to themselves right now, because if you think about what's happening around the world, around, you know, some of the trends like deglobalization frictions in supply chains, that doesn't necessarily need to go away 
you know, with, for example, hopefully the, the war in Ukraine ending as soon as possible. And if you think about uh, deglobalization and supply chains, you know, that's really closely related to commodity prices, has a big impact on FX risks, and ultimately that actually influences central bank policies as well. So there are a lot of interrelated processes that, you know, in totality might mean that we, we could find ourselves living in a higher interest rate environment for longer. Okay, super clear. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Stefan. I'd like also to liaise it with multiple recent surveys that are going out lately. They all seem to be indicating that cash flow forecasting and working capital management is at the top of the agendas of CFOs and treasurers. What's, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's totally unsurprising given, given, given what we just discussed. You know, forecasting is to an extent a prerequisite to efficient working capital management, because unless you understand, you know, what demand you're likely to face, um, when, when exactly your different passions are going to take place and, and also when you should expect your outflows to take place, it's very difficult to put processes in place to, to manage that in a kind of optimal way. I think we noticed a couple of interesting things on the on the forecasting side of things. So you're right. If you if you ask a, a treasurer or a CFO about this, they tend to they tend to agree that say it's a top priority. There are also some surveys which suggest that at the same time many CFOs and treasurers consider their own organization to actually be very good at forecasting. Indeed, we, we read a recent survey which, which suggested that between 70 and 80% CFOs considered their own process to be, to be best in class. And I think it probably makes sense to, to a large extent, especially if you, if you think about slightly larger companies, because traditional forecasting is actually a pretty well understood process, in my experience, and many companies have, have done pretty well at mastering that. And I think that the next step is, is really to kind of think about how forecasting feeds into broader working capital processes as opposed to being a distinct field. So what do you mean by that? Like as a distinct field, do you see like a specific department dedicated to that? Well, yeah, it's, it's something we, we spend a lot of time thinking about here at Ayora. So if you think about how this, how this is being done by the companies today, you know, forecasting is seen as a, as a kind of distinct process within the treasury that people undertake. What we're quite interested in is you know, instead of looking at it as a slightly separate question is, can you actually, for example, feed, feed forecasting to be just a feature of, of, of the process. So to give you a concrete example, you know, there's more and more talk about the objective-based forecasts, which form an integral part of, for example, like a smart AP system that essentially undertakes certain forecasting activities in order to achieve a very specific goal that it does, as opposed to creating a forecast for, for a general purpose. Okay. So the survey you mentioned, Stefan, um, I'm interested in having a look at it. So we'll put the link in the description so people can actually consult it because that's, that's very good insight. And yeah, overall, people want to know where their money is, right? That's, that's, more, Absolutely. Or less, that's more or less the idea. Yeah, makes sense. So what are the, what are the solutions out there on the market that, in, that can help corporate treasurers in the management of their working capital? What's out there right now? 
Well, the tech landscape is, is evolving. There are actually a number of interesting solutions out there. Many of them are kind of predicated on what we call kind of seamless execution. So oftentimes that means that these are essentially payment systems, which help to move money um, either in or out of a company. And you know, this is a space that has seen a lot of evolution. There are a number of kind of incumbent players in the space, but you also have the increasing interest from, from upsets and trying to disrupt these different, different kind of subdomains. Okay. And is it, could we call it enough? Like is the offer out there able to support the requirements of treasurers, but also I'd like to say the evolving needs and requirements, right? As per those priorities that we just broke down, is it, is it enough? Well, it's certainly helpful and many of these tools, uh, do a great job at what they are designed to do. But I think it also depends on how you kind of want to look at digitalization or then working capital management, because you know, working capital management is not just about execution. You know, if you, if you think about payments, that's actually just a culmination of a much more intricate process that takes place in order to get money moving from one place to, to another. So, you know, we think that if you kind of, if you're trying to find areas where, where more value can be extracted within working capital, I think a lot of that would be around process discipline and controlling, um, that discipline within companies and, you know, increasingly technology might be, might be deployed to the send as well. And you know, the smarter it gets, the more, the more helpful it can be. It's helping people to effectively deal with processes in a, in an increasingly agile way. Do you think those solutions are coming from the traditional players in the market, or do you think that it's really the, the fintech and, and younger, maybe not the younger, younger companies, the new companies are disrupting it, or do you see those solutions providing the existing providers? An interesting question. I think there, there are existing providers that's, that have done a good job. And, you know, there are, there are some quite impressive companies that maybe a few years ago would have been called a startup. And these days they're kind of becoming increasingly seen as incumbents. But, um, inevitably there's, you know, there's a lot of scope to, to kind of improve things, but also just approach things from a slightly different perspective. And I think that's what a lot of younger companies are doing is they are trying to take some of these business models, find areas where perhaps there's scope for, for improvement and for just making it, you know, making it more suitable for, for the way that you work today, as opposed to 10 years ago. So, so what are those, can you give an example of like the kind of methodologies or tools that were typically employed for working capital management and treasury departments, which perhaps now are less easy to use or less effective, um, or archaic even. Yeah, what are the tools of those? I think if you kind of look at those situations where people try to make incremental improvements to, to a kind of pre-existing technology, accounts payable systems are, are a good example of that. So, you know, 20 or 10 years ago, people were trying to essentially digitize a process which used to take place across email, uh, Excel spreadsheets and the like. Today, people are thinking to what extent these processes require nearly as much human input as, as, uh, 
you know, they, they did five years ago. And so people are asking themselves questions about to what extent is human involvement here useful? Is this a case of further digitizing this or is it actually a case of just automating the way? And conversely, you know, I think that that leads to the second question, which is where where is human time best spent? And oftentimes that's around managing processes which kind of come before this execution side of accounts payable. And that's where we, we see probably a little bit less less kind of pre-existing activity and pre-existing providers in, in that space. But we expected this probably going to, to only grow. Being corporate treasury one one. And I think I think conversations so far has been quite non one oh one, which is nice as well. And your accounts payable systems. If we just break that down for a second, because it's interesting that you say that that's really one of the big opportunity areas, is typically inside a company, you would have like an admin sitting and like really paying all the invoices to all the suppliers manually, meaning logging into a bank account, putting in the details of the receiving bank account, and then clicking send, right? Is that, is that those are the kinds of processes you're talking about? Is as basic as that or? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much to, to a large extent it boils down to, to exactly that. Um, there is, you know, a little bit more work to be done than purely logging into bank account portals. You, you'll find that account payable teams often kind of manage the entire process of ensuring that invoices are legitimate and that they, that they also are as they should be in terms of structure, uh, amount and so on. And I think. Which you, which you then find this, you know, to what extent this, for example, verification uh, and governance function of accounts payable um, is is necessary versus, for example, this this kind of simple execution side of it, where you just click a number of buttons to, to make a payment. Yeah, I think people increasingly argue that the, the governance side is is naturally sitting with with people, whereas the side of logging into the bank accounts is perhaps less because it's there's just less 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 kind of value being added in those final activities if you like but i think you know the the kind of second interesting question that that many people ask themselves who stay on their accounts payable topic is you know do you how often do you have to do this how often can you can you process invoices um many companies will kind of organize their payment activities into what they call payment runs when they execute a lot of, kind of payments which are due around a similar time, let's say once a week, maybe you know, only a couple of times a month. That inevitably leads to situations where you might end up paying something a little bit earlier than it's due. So it's a good example where technology can step in and help people sort of schedule payments, of which there could be you know, many thousands in other cases, at exactly the optimal date. Which again comes back to the point of you know, maximizing cash on hand and effectively reducing your financing expenses. So what I what I take from all this, Stefan, is that some companies and I mean I can only uh, concur with that. Some companies are, are quite far in the automation process, digitization. Like we are still at very early stages of this for certain big corporates, in, even um, that it's still very manual, very uh, human based. So. I know there are some steps between um, this and what I would like to talk about, but I need to ask the question though. Uh, there is a kind of a trendy topic lately, to say the least, which is AI, artificial intelligence. If 
So if we look at really the, the best in class working capital management processes, systems, and companies that execute that the best, what could be the role of AI? And if we are like 20 years from now, where everybody has streamlined their process, optimized them and so on, where does AI fit into all this? Yeah, we, we see this uh, as, as a very exciting space. You know, I think if you asked me 24 months ago, I probably would have told you that it's largely around automating some of those kind of more repetitive processes, like for example, scheduling payments at the right time. But I think the technology has advanced so much and also the people's responsiveness to it and willingness to adopt advanced so much that we can imagine a future where AI can actually assist people with, with also decision-making that goes into managing work capital well beyond, you know, very simple administrative processes. And we think that, for example, there are very exciting applications for AI in helping people to make sense of, of all the different sort of data points that they, that they receive, um, as part of working capital processes and, and finding efficiencies or inefficiencies that might actually not be apparent to them at all. So we think that AI, you know, could be deployed to effectively become a process enhancement tool as opposed to being a pure automation tool, because probably in, in the near to mid, mid-time future, we, we, we will still have a significant human element in, in all of these processes. So we think, yeah, we think that the, the space is actually fast. How, how far away you think from a, a minority report, working capital management kind of <laughs> processes where you just have to put on gloves and we can, you know, touch holograms and forecast everything and have working capital management enabled through this, um, or probably, probably a bit faster. Chances are, you know, a lot of this, one, one thing to kind of also bear in mind always about working capital is that it's, it's always a. A, a two-way process. You always have someone who is the supplier, someone who is the who is the procurer. So, to some extent, you know there, there will be limitations as to what can be achieved on one side if the other isn't quite as technologically advanced. No, a lot of sense. So, overall, if we had to look at the at the future of working capital management, um, but let's be a bit more realistic than minority report in the short, mid term, like one to five years, let's say. Uh, what will be the solutions out there that we'll be able to find to help corporate treasurers and CFOs? Well, help them with their priorities, right? Yeah, I think I think it's probably going to be to be twofold. The the solutions to automate some of the processes that that are appropriate to be automated will probably become more prevalent and, and easier to adopt. And and I think also we we will increasingly see people deploying. Um, technological solutions to essentially help with, with more of a, say, strategical or at least tactical decision-making where those, where those decisions cannot be simply automated. Okay. So overall, maybe to wrap up on this, uh, what is working capital management and what are the solutions out there? So working capital management is about maximizing cash flow, right? By optimizing your AP and AR processes and making sure that everything around it, inventory management, human resources, whatever that is a cost center, but also the revenues, this whole thing is optimized. Is there anything else that we didn't mention and you'd like to, uh, you'd like to mention in regards to working capital management and the solutions out there right now? 
I suppose the, the one topic that we, we haven't spent as much time on is, is, is the kind of work capital financing side of the equation. Um, you know, there, there are solutions to help you accelerate your, your cash conversion using financial products. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting space, but it's perhaps slightly less directly related to what we're trying to do at IRA, which is to support people with organic cash generation. Mm, so it's, it will be, uh, that would be the perfect transition, but I guess where you want to position yourself at IRA is just before that's supply chain financing and working capital management financing. Yeah. Super clear. Exactly. Sorry. Can I, can I ask a question a little bit going back to, to the AI conversation? Stefan, you mentioned something interesting, which was like, and, and indeed, like this is something that as I learned about AR and, and AP, uh, you kind of realize that someone's AR is another person's AP or in the whole supply chain of whatever it is you're delivering as a good or service. If you had like two AIs, like a, an artificial intelligence on the AR side and the same and another one on the AP side of that same transaction, and you're both optimizing for whatever you do, like couldn't there like be a, I don't know, like a singularity moment in that like where I don't know, both of them like optimized down to an instantaneous transaction that's good for no one or, or, or I don't know, like would it, would the whole world just blow up if it happened? Yeah, you're right. There's definitely a, a competing tensions um, in these processes. And you know, what you often find is that this is to a large extent down to, to the kind of, let's say, power dynamics between the two actors. So what you find that is that, is that sometimes you know, the attractiveness of things like payment terms or billing terms becomes just part of the value proposition that, that you're selling as, as part of your solution. So you're right. There's, it's, it's to some extent, it, um, it's always going to be a set of trade-offs. And I think that's why it's also important to remember that, you know, it's not quite as simple as just automating processes and being done with it because it is much more nuanced oftentimes than, than it might look like. Yeah, I mean, Guillaume, you always made a point when we were talking about this in our previous episodes around leverage in your supply chain, right? Can you, do you have the, yeah, leverage the scale to be able to negotiate favorable payment terms for yourself versus others in your notes? Can the AI negotiate one day? Like, is that, is that, can two AIs negotiate with each other and come out with a, a favorable outcome because in human interactions of negotiating those kind of things, it's kind of like, okay, one for me next time for you, we build trust, we build relationships and therefore we're able to have those, you know, these things foster relationships almost as well, especially in your customers and your clients. Uh, I want to witness that conversation. If it ever, ever happens, exactly. to AIs. <laughs> even though that might be at supersonic speeds, might be interesting. Yes. It would be interesting to see the arguments that are being used. Uh, Gordon, you're you're the technical guy in the t in the team. Do you think that you can code in parameters for AI negotiations and leverage? Which depends if you're talking about narrow AI or um, narrow AI, or you know general AI or deep AI. Um, so initially, these things would probably be constructed with narrow AI. They'd work within a you know set parameters. Uh, there may be some you know negotiation in there that you know, some leeway that it can work towards, but then it would just 
you know, back off if it ha- hit that threshold. Whereas with more kind of deep AI that would be driven by a real-time learning algorithm that was seeking reward, for example, what we call reinforcement learning, uh, which we might touch on again a little bit later, which, um, for example, Google DeepMind wrote a really interesting paper that they published that, you know, reinforcement learning, this idea of seeking reward and being punished by penalty is what drives, uh, you know, the entirety of learning across, you know, biological organisms. So um, if you're dealing with that, where it's constantly trying to seek the most reward, it really depends on what kind of, first of all, the, the policy that's been set for it. So what can it do? But if that's unconstrained, if it has no um, limits that have been built into it, then it really will just seek the maximum possible reward. So if that involves essentially getting one over on the other party, then it'll really come down to who had the better reinforcement learning algorithm between those two parties when those two AIs are working uh, you know, against each other. So yeah, it'd be very much like a game. So yeah, it was a very interesting idea. There's, there's a really interesting um, story on reinforcement um, based reward systems, which is like uh, they, they did the same thing with football uh, robots once, right? And it's interesting because when you code those kind of pro- problems, you need to be very careful with what you reward. So in those ro- football based robots, they rewarded like scoring goals and things, but they also rewarded touches on the ball. So if you're able to to touch the ball or what they meant to do was passes, but they coded as touches. And these robots were just sitting there, just kept the ball in front of them and just kept touching it like this to like max out the the reward system. So I guess it can go wrong as well if you don't uh, set it up correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it'll probably be a big stimulus to really uh, bring in in regulation as well. There'll be some kind of safety event in some industry where you know, this will just get a bit out of control. Someone will coded it incorrectly, for example, in some way, and uh, we'll have a weird, hopefully not catastrophic, but there'll be some weird kind of event where uh, it becomes, there'll be some kind of unfairness in the system that will require regulation. I agree. And I think it's, you know, get a, get an interesting, interesting topic when it comes to working capital management is there are certain circumstances in which companies might actually self-impose certain limitations to how far they will go. I think a kind of commonly quoted example of this is management of like essentially your, your payables and stretching out payment terms. What you will find is that large companies, which theoretically should have a greater negotiating power, also have worse DPO metrics than smaller companies. And that's actually most often due to the fact that those large companies don't want to be seen as unfairly stretching payment terms on on their own supply chains, which which might have a lower negotiating power. And, you know, that comes back to kind of people's perceptions on corporate behavior and treatment of of, of your very various stakeholders. So whilst you know financial efficiency is a is a big driver, you you will find that working capital has more facets to it than, than just that. Bring us on to to yourselves, please. Tell us about Iora as, as a company. What do you guys, I mean, we talked a lot about working capital management today. I touched on automation and, and AI even. What do you guys do at Iora in all of this? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking. The way we like to describe ourselves is, is uh, we're building a new and intelligent toolkit to help CFOs and treasurers to manage the balance sheets and even better than they do now. And I think... Um, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful, but 
really what, what we're trying to convey is that we are building a platform that seeks to understand the company's balance sheet profile and then is able to kind of provide like contextualized feedback um, back to users to essentially help them improve their cash operations. And this, this includes both you know, the liquidity side of this equation, so the cash that you already have on hand, but also working capital side, which is the cash um, that's kind of in, in the pipeline, if you like. And um, we, we kind of started off with building a liquidity platform. That platform helps companies make the most of the cash they already have. And now, we, now we're looking to kind of broaden that tool to also support cash conversion, but ultimately it's, it just comes back to kind of helping people gain this much more contextualized visibility as to what's happening with them, cash flow. Okay, so super clear, Stefan. Thanks a lot for this. How can you walk us through how it is actually different from the existing solutions and maybe linking back to what we said earlier, right? What is out there today helping corporate treasurers and CFOs already? Uh, how do you guys at IOTA make something that will help them in a different way and normally in a better way? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I think there are a couple of like important differences between how we approach this and, and many others. So firstly, we, we're like, we are really kind of pretty relentlessly focused on making everything we do actionable. You know, what we find is that there are many solutions that are actually really good at sort of summarizing and displaying like large data sets and helping people kind of get like a, almost like a bird's eye view of, of the situation. And we want to take it a step further. So, you know, we, we actually want to like build tools that help people to actually just insert the best course of action based on the data that our platform sees. So it becomes less of a reporting tool and, and more of a, almost like a, like a quasi, quasi, you know, programmatic advisory tool that helps you manage your finances kind of on the fly. And this comes back to the point that, you know, you made earlier, which is that a lot of these processes kind of happen like minute by minute, day by day. People often look at it from a kind of point in time perspective, which, which makes perfect sense. But at the same time, you know, we think that today, um, you can do even more and you don't have to keep looking at something to make sure that it, you maximize every opportunity to create value. And secondly, the, the kind of distinction that, that we see between ourselves and many other solutions is that we are kind of big, big fans of, let's say, embedded finance as a, as a theme. And when I say embedded finance, uh, if, just go back to <clears throat> things like embedding payment functionalities in, in apps. It's actually more about the idea of finding the user, <clears throat> sorry, in the environments in which they already reside. So to give you an example, do you, in order to manage your balance sheet, do you always have to log back into an application like a TMS? Or, you know, is it more appropriate that some of these functionalities are delivered to you somewhere else? And, you know, people spend a lot of times in tools like email, Microsoft Teams, you name it. And frankly, we believe that a lot of this information that our platform can ingest and produce back and help interpret, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to live just in, in, in our application. Oh, you touched a really interesting point here on the fact that treasury analysts and above are not only looking at reporting anymore, right? But 
this whole real-time visibility, real-time access doesn't need to be just for the sake of it, right? It's to allow better um, and strategic decision-making. So that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. How, going back to working capital management in particular, how will that help them, um, the IRA solution? How will that help the treasury professionals directly in the management of their working cap? Yeah, so I think I think you're right. You know, it's the world is kind of getting more and more real time. If you like the, the the downside of that is that we suddenly have to make a lot of decisions very quickly because because you see things changing all the time. Try to think on how that impacts people who work in these fields. You know, they're frankly under like ever increasing cognitive pressure. You know, and we we see this through conversations with with people we have. Ourselves, you know, there are actually quite interesting research pieces out there which try to kind of measure the, the impact of data availability on how people make decisions and, you know, to what extent does kind of data overload um, might lead to actual adverse outcomes if, if it isn't being helped in a certain way. Because at the end of the day, you know, if the more you know, it doesn't mean that you always want to make a better decision. And there's probably a limit as to how much time not only you can devote to something, but also there's a limit as to how much time it makes sense to devote to a certain decision. Because you know there's always a trade-off between your own time um, and and other things that you might be looking at instead of sort of that specific thing. So I think you know in our case, being able to interpret vast amounts of data that keeps moving past and fishing out patterns, which we can then present back to people in a digestible way. And, you know, suggest to them what kind of action might be necessary based on this new information is, is very helpful because it kind of turns the tables around and our system almost becomes proactive as opposed to being reactive. There are that many applications in the past have been designed. And then secondly, I think and this is kind of related as well is, you know, in the past, a lot of, especially in the context of working capital, a lot of time was spent by decision makers on kind of interacting with, with these process teams on the ground. And that, you know, to, to a large extent, this is, this is good because it fosters collaboration. But at the same time, if the kind of intensity of these interactions can increase because there's more information, it's more read, readily accessible, you know, can we help kind of provide like a bit of a bridge between those two worlds and help essentially, you know, make sure that the processes are managed in a way that ultimately maximizes value. Super clear. Could you, we love to diving into the details and the technical details of, of these kind of things. Could you take us through like how your platform is able to, well, maybe this is a good way to put it. Could you start with like the traditional way our TMS or our treasury working capital system is integrated and how your solution is integrated to enable the more, not only real-time access, but also the insights access. Is it like cloud-based? Is it onboard? Like, how does it work? It's probably useful just to start with how these systems have evolved over time. So when treasury management systems first came about at any kind of um, significant stage, I mean, let's say 20 years ago, there'd been very much kind of desktop systems that you had to install like all of the software around that time, you, you would have required a direct connection with uh, a bank that you'd have to establish 
uh, between uh, you as a TMS company and the bank. And that would probably have not even used modern um, communication standards. What we're talking about there are things like uh, REST, for example, that's representational, representational state transfer, which is a modern way of communicating between systems. They'd have probably been very clunky using very old-fashioned you know, protocols. Um, one example is Edifact, hardly anyone uses anymore, but there are still some legacy systems that use these really old-school ways of talking to each other. That's how it would have started. And over the years, some companies, some big companies, some big TMS systems um, like um, Kirba, for example, They've built hundreds of these direct connections with different banks, which made them very powerful in the sense that they can di- you know, directly connect to multiple banks uh, in multiple jurisdictions. However, you know, in, in, say 2018, this started to change whereby um, open banking came along and that's been rolling out ever since, whereby that was it, it started to become necessary to create those direct connections. You could actually use a single gateway, and, and which all, all works around REST principles, and so systems communicating in a, in a modern way. And that, that enables companies like us to not have to come along and create uh, 500 direct bank connections. Uh, we can then use, um, connect to many banks uh, using open banking. There still may be a need for direct connections in certain jurisdictions that aren't well covered by open banking or in, cert- in certain corporate cases that haven't quite gotten to banking yet. But it greatly reduces the the entry point to um, connect to banks. So yeah, in summary, that's that we we use open banking as our first method to connect, and then we can use direct bank connections because it's just all works around this REST principle, and that's well understood and, and quite easy to integrate now. And um, yeah, that's how we do it. How many APIs have you had to make to enable us? Exactly, or is there something that? It's quite straightforward to do because I mean, even if you are in linked into your open banking systems, you have to. There's lots of different parts of open banking as well, right? It's not just like you you log in and you're in this stream of data that's freely roaming around, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a good question. So worth mentioning that when when open banking came along, it initially was just a cleaner way of essentially banking systems to communicate. But what happened was companies started. Um, coming up that were essentially providing a single gateway to access the whole of open banking, or as much as possible. Um, players there are, are players like Played, Klarna Cosma, in the UK there's Yappily, uh, and many others, Tink, which was acquired by Visa. Um, and um, so what they do is they make it easy. You only have to talk to one API, uh, essentially. Um, so we use um, Played and Klarna Cosma. We use Klarna Cosma for access to uh, UK, EU, single market. We use Played for access to the US uh, open banking. So yeah, that's only two APIs that we need to uh, use to actually get our open banking connectivity. So you can imagine that's a much better starting point than 500 direct bank connections. And so yeah, that, that's our kind of basis. Britt, could you break that down for us just a little bit more then, Gordon? So as a Venn, as a uh, user of a platform like Iora, right? If I'm sitting in a treasury department, you are connected to this open banking protocol, which is able to connect to all the external bank partners, other providers. Maybe there's some FX in there. Maybe there's some hedging, et cetera, et cetera. How do you then connect to my internal processes, like my ERP, my 
EMS if I already have one that's perhaps sitting parallel to yours or or something like this? Do I log into a portal and then it's just connected or or how does that work? Yeah, so ERP systems follow a similar setup. So a lot of modern ERP systems also use these REST principles and therefore they have their own APIs. Uh, they often, they sometimes uh, have a whole suite of developer tools and um, developer documentation, even sandboxes uh, to enable developers to integrate systems. And these developers could be internal developers at a given company or they could be uh, technology companies like us. And so what we can do is we can basically follow this documentation and use their uh, tools. But you just it's worth just mentioning, people might hear this term, it's useful to know. Um, uh, we often call these SDKs, software developer uh, kits, uh, which is basically just a way of easily connecting to a system which under the hood uses an API through REST. It just makes it even simpler uh, for a developer to plug into this. So we use these SDKs if they're available, and um, essentially we can uh, make a secure connection to some uh, to some kind of system, ERP system, for example, whereby the uh, company, if they want to connect their ERP system, all they have to do is provide a set of credentials, which is normally like a client ID and a client secret. And that allows them to do a, a secure handshake. And once that handshake is completed, um, they're then given a kind of key, if you like, a token, uh, that they can use. And that token uh, will enable them to access the system and whatever data they've given permission for us to access. So that might be their ledger entries, for example. It might be transaction history within the, the ERP system, etc. So that's how we do it, basically. It's all using these principles of APIs under the hood. And just to not scare off our treasury friends uh, overall, this all happens automatically, right? Like, your system is automatically talking to this other system. It's not the person needs to know what a token is and what a secure handshake is. And they have to remember another set of credentials, which is called a client ID, which is separate to their user. And this is all like automatically done when they first start boot up the system and that's it, right? That's right. Actually, they'd probably have very little to do this. I, we would just liaise directly with their kind of um, system administrator. So m most of the companies we do will have a kind of dedicated person who knows this well and is happy to do all this. So yeah, from the kind of treasurer and user point of view, they won't really see any of this. This will just be part of a brief onboarding process whereby we just can make these connections. And then from their perspective, we just want them to be able to see um, their data and be able to work with their data, be able to link their data. I link banking data with ERP system data with, uh, you know, an existing TMS system data, um, et cetera. So yeah, from that point of view, don't worry, there'd be really nothing for them to do. Our whole thing is to make it as simple as possible and to, uh, if anything, make sure that complexity is, is like buried where it should be and, um, and, and the end user can just do what needs to do. Is there like a prerequisite level of system that a potential company that wants to integrate your system needs to have because i mean with the number of treasures kima and i have spoken to group treasures treasury assist um, assistant treasures etc um off off record and on record there's some horror stories out there about like how archaic some systems really are and um, the word excel getting thrown around a little too loosely uh, at times as well like do you 
there's, there's like a minimum, I guess, that their system needs to be pre-automated before you add value on top, right? Um, well, actually, we kind of target companies that don't actually have a TMS already. Um, if companies already have a uh, you know, significant TMS product, then that's really good. They're, they're probably doing everything they need to be doing. Whereas we actually like to speak to companies that don't have an existing solution and therefore are still using Excel to manage their cash flow, uh, the cash visibility, who are having trouble getting their ERP system data to marry up with their um, bank transaction data. That's exactly who we would like to speak to because we can probably solve significant pain there. Essentially, this is quite a manual process in Excel um, and can be very tedious and prone to error. And therefore, actually, the less automation you already have, the more we can probably help. Super interesting. And so, but then tell me about the the system that Stefan mentioned earlier around the insights that you're also doing. So you're not just doing the um, the real time connectivity, etc. That I guess any ERP or any TMS out there could probably start to provide. Um, you guys are also like giving this sort of assistance tool, predictive, or or um, I think the word that you used was insights, right? How does that work? What does that do exactly? Yeah, that's right. So, um, the, yeah, what we've just talked about, the connecting systems is kind of the starting point. Just, to, you know, you need that to, so it's like the minimum layer you need to start to give some value. And then we want to try and give more value by offering some, uh, what, what we like to call actual insights. So, we, we could tell people that the balance is getting low and, and that's it. That is a useful alert sometimes, but most of the time people kind of on top of this anyway. So what we like to tell people about it is that part of our actual insights is opportunities for them to save money, opportunity for them to uh, make more money from their money. And so that's what we're looking for. So actual insights would be that we've noticed that there is excess liquidity parked in one of your accounts let's say you have 20 bank accounts and we've now got them all under one roof we can see exactly where all the money is perhaps a few of those accounts are like like trading accounts and, and there's money coming in and out and perhaps some of them are more kind of holding accounts whereby um money's being essentially stored there and what companies can end up with is a, a kind of significant pool of capital and they might not always know it exactly because they don't have absolute crystal clear clarity over their cash visibility and their forecasting because they're not really sure where everything is and they need to contact five different people and log into 20 different systems to work that out. So all of a sudden they may be in a situation whereby they can actually reinvest this excess liquidity um, into money market funds, uh, which are offering very attractive rates right now. It may be that we can work out if there's opportunities to renegotiate with their suppliers in terms of payment terms. And it may be that we can identify that they have significant currency exposure and therefore looking at hedging would be a good idea so these are the kind of actual insights that we like to offer uh, and that comes from analyzing the data once it's all been integrated centralized yeah that's that's the basis of what we do and that's an automated system so i mean these are the kind of insights a treasurer would be looking at the data hopefully and pulling out right that you would have a treasury analyst looking at Eventually, you're like, hey, by the way, we could pull all of our cash into this. And instead of uh, borrowing money in this region or at this in this legal entity that we have, 
we can just pull cash over from another one and then save cost of borrowing or something like this. But the idea is to really automate these insights. So it's kind of like, what's this tool that, I think it's like these like editor tools. I don't know if anyone's ever used them, like Hemingway and stuff like this. Like you put in the text and then it kind of says, oh, you could do this better and this is a bit complicated and just a bunch of things pop up and go, hey, um, you should you know replace this with a noun or, or whatever like this, right? It really like is able to analyze same way a human does or yeah where there's access to more data exactly yeah it's kind of a bit like we sometimes use the analogy of a co-pilot i mean there's as a software engineer we have a lot of tools now that help us with this for example i think popular one right now is github copilot which is essentially it plugs into your development environment so the place where you're writing code and you can kind of just talk to it a bit like chat gpt and um it will kind of just automatically give you um, ideas or um, suggestions as to what your next line of code could be. And it really helps with productivity. It means that you're not having to like write out boilerplate that's actually very boring um, to do. Um, and it kind of just does that for you. You can focus on the bits that you know matter uh, and making sure it works. Uh, and that's kind of what we want to do is to enable them to absolutely have oversight of all of this and to have the final say of whether money, money is invested or hedging products are purchased or supplies are renegotiated with, but bring this to the to the front of their their um to their mind. It's it's a behavioral thing as well. It's it's a, in a sense empowering them with the insights that they need to know at the right time so they can make the best decisions possible. And they're not just drowned with decision paralysis and drowned with data and manual tasks uh, and moving things um, around on different spreadsheets and trying to get a hold of different pieces of data. That's what it's really about. It, it's really about enabling them to be kind of manage their treasury the best way they can. Another aspect that you often refer to on your website that we'd like to, to dig into is the treasury policy. So this is a big topic, so we will probably need to have a, a full dedicated episode on this, but maybe to begin with, can you briefly explain to us what a treasury policy is? Yeah, sure. It's, um, you know, that's, that's actually, I guess it's a document which a number of principles that will kind of underpin how you approach treasury management in general. And, you know, within the treasury policy, you, you often find various sections that deal with different types of considerations that you need to have around, let's say, cash and broader or treasury management. Um, it will probably state, you know, what are your objectives, how you, what kind of tools you have at your disposal, how you will make decisions, what kind of governance um, kind of you put around it. And then very importantly, it will also um, at least give you a guidance uh, as to how to define your risk appetite, uh, your treasury risk appetite. Because you know, at the end of the day, when you think about treasury, it's all about a uh, kind of balance of risks and rewards, rewards you can achieve. And in a way, like, you know, a well-designed treasure policy kind of acts as your like north star for your day-to-day decision making, and this kind of goes back to some of the things that Gordon mentioned just now, which is that um, you know we try to our systems are trying to identify areas where we can improve on a kind of continuous basis because these are life processes that keep changing, and the reason why we why we like comes to treasury policy so much and we essentially allow people to like encode elements of the treasury policy in our platform is 
to, to give our systems an understanding as to what is the kind of risk appetite of, of a given organization that's using the platform. And, you know, these might be risks related to, to your liquidity profile, to your FX exposures, to your counterparty exposures. It's, it's a way for us to, to essentially make sure that we don't apply a cookie cutter approach to everybody and, you know, attempt to create a one size fits all solution. It's really about finding those opportunities and risks that are opportunities and risks as you understand them and as, as they use them. That's a super good one. How do you, do you link those two? Do you invite the users to actually trust their treasury policy within the tool? Do you link it with any other document, TMS or whatever they would be setting up to say, okay, this is our maximum exposure that we are willing not to hedge, for instance. How does that work in the, in the nitty gritty for the case of IORA? Yeah. So we essentially ask people a set of questions at, at onboarding or around onboarding or the, the system asks the questions and we kind of use the answers that you provide to, to define uh, that, that risk appetite, you know, it's, it's quite clean because it means that, you know, you don't have to fiddle with a lot of PDFs and, but also necessarily worry about elements of a treasury policy, that perhaps are less relevant to what our system does. Okay. And so do you offer solutions in regard to the treasury policy as a whole, or is it only focused on working capital management or is there like room for scaling up and developing further on that? And there's probably always, always room to, to expand <laughs> right now. It's, it's a show, I'm sure. <laughs> but right now we, we kind of link it really back to, to the functionalities that we, that we offer. And, you know, we, for example, when it comes to kind of like cash and liquidity side of, of the treasure, treasure function, that really is a set of kind of liquidity and market risks that the people need to manage for. You guys also have this section in your literature where you talk about bank concentration risk, right? Which is also a very topical conversation, especially in the US right now, where we've seen three big banks, well, globally seen three big banks fail, regional banks to be fair. Um, I mean, I guess it's quite topical, right? Everyone's thinking about, well, am I a startup right now that's got all my money in Silicon Valley Bank that <laughs> can only withdraw like uh, 250,000 of it? Etc. Like, can you talk a little bit more about about that? Like, what's what's your insights or what solutions you provide around bank concentration risk? Yeah, totally. It's a very very topical one, and um, you know we see this as one of the elements of of like the market risks that you need to manage for. Yeah, look, it's obviously really unfortunate that you know there were these these events that have made everybody think about it again, and you know we are we are sorry to see like some really kind of um, match lock that situations get trouble, right? Um, but it, it's kind of is a reminder that, you know, risk management is kind of about managing for kind of black swan events, um, in a way, and, and they do happen. And unfortunately they tend to come about, uh, kind of like fast and out of nowhere, or at least it might seem like that. Um, but you know, like on a kind of more practical note, if you think about counterparty exposures, this is really just, you know, how, how likely is it that the counterparties that effectively, you know, owe your money, uh, run a trouble and might not be able to get it back to you. It's, it's kind of linked back to 
you know, the broader macroeconomic environment we we're talking about earlier. And I think it's just another emanation of, of kind of new risks that you know, kind of raise the head again, if you like. And how do we help people manage that? Well, you know, companies tend to have a policy as to how much exposure they're willing to take to a, a single institution. If they don't, they probably should. The way we, we've set up our platform means that even if as an organization you haven't thought about it before, we can we can essentially help you think about it now. And um and then we and then we we track this this exposure on an ongoing basis. And if you kind of deviate for some reason, and um, then we'll let you know so that you can re- rebalance your, your exposures. Um, and we're also able to kind of you know, make use of the fact that this is a computer system, so it's pretty good at pushing out information like um, you know, things like ratings, um, things like regulatory delegations from different banks, so you don't have to think about this. It just help all the time. Makes a lot of sense. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Is there anything else that you want to add about Iora or working capital management or the future of working capital management? Um, well, I mean, you know, firstly, we, we also wanted to thank you for, uh, for hosting us today. We really enjoyed the discussion. I mean, just to summarize, you know, reaching treasury is a very exciting topic. And, and likewise, we, we just, we just also wanted to, you know, uh, remind everybody listening that treasury is not just a big company topic and you know no matter how big or small a company is they they inevitably will have a treasury function even if there's no separate team to to manage that um and you know no matter how how big or small uh you you need to think about these problems these risks and also opportunities that, that this function kind of entails you know oftentimes these problems appear to be small in isolation but it's kind of all about maximizing these marginal gains and, and avoiding extreme risks. You know, it adds up. And there's actually also what machines are pretty good at. So, yeah, that's um, that's that's kind of um, a little summary. And, you know, if um, you want to learn more about us, then obviously head to uh, helloiora.com to our ward and, or hit us up on LinkedIn. Both Gordon and I spend probably a bit too much time on LinkedIn. It's good. Everything related to that will be in the show notes below. So anyone listening can go down there and find either Gordon or Stefan's LinkedIn profile or also the Hello Euro website link as well. Guys, I uh, appreciate you a lot for coming on and uh, all the best with uh, all the, the, the company. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Bye-bye. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Cheers.